Good morning. And good morning to those on the live stream and a special greeting to those who are our guests who are with us for Open Week. Uh, glad you could join us this morning. Um, would you turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 26? Matthew chapter 26. We're going to look together uh, from verse 57 in a moment, but before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, please take from our minds everything that might get in the way of us hearing your word this morning. We pray, Father, that you might address us, that you might comfort us and challenge us, that your word might do its work, shaping us to be more like Jesus, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Matthew 26, verse 57. Those who arrested Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and elders gathered. And Peter followed him from a distance up to the courtyard of the high priest and went inside and sat with the servants to watch the end. The high priests and the whole Sanhedrin sought false testimony against Jesus so that they might kill him. And they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Later, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God, and after three days I will rebuild it. And the high priest stood and said to him, Do you have no answer to what they are testifying against you? But Jesus was silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of, the, uh, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You said it, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, He blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, you've now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves to die. Then they spat in his face and beat him, and they slapped him, saying, Prophesy for us, Christ, who struck you? Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and one servant girl came to him and said, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it in front of them all, saying, I don't know what you're talking about. He went out onto the porch and another servant girl said to those standing by, he was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And after a little while, those standing around came over and said to Peter, you're definitely one of them, for even just your accent makes it obvious. Then he began to call down curses on himself and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a cock crowed. And Peter remembered the words Jesus said, before a cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Early in the morning, all the high priests and elders of the people came to, the, to a decision against Jesus to put him to death. And binding him, they let him out and handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas, the one who betrayed him, saw that they had condemned him, he regretted what he did and brought back to the high priests and elders the 30 pieces of silver and said, I sinned betraying innocent blood. And they said, what's that got to do with us? See to it yourself. When he had thrown down the silver in the temple, he left and went and hanged himself. 
The high priest, picking up the money, said, It's not lawful to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So taking counsel, they bought with it the potter's field in order to bury foreigners. Therefore, it is called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was said through Jeremiah the prophet. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of the price that had been paid by the sons of Israel, and they gave it for the field of the potter, just as the Lord directed me. In the three little scenes from these last hours of Jesus' life that we come to this morning in Matthew's Gospel, there are what we might describe as three trials. The trial of Caiaphas, the trial of Peter, and the trial of Judas. These three trials coalesce around the bigger, more important trial, of course, the trial of Jesus that would end in his death, just as he foretold, betrayed by one of his own disciples, led to the Jewish high priest, handed over to the Roman governor, the only truly innocent one put to death while the guilty are set free. But each of these other trials are significant and each of them has something important to teach us. It is possible to have the truth standing square in front of you and without even blinking to try to wipe it out. And you could do that just as easily as Caiaphas. It is possible to make the boldest profession of faith and loyalty to push yourself to the front of the line as the most courageous, most truly faithful and to crumble not just at the big and terrifying challenge but the little powerless one. And you could do that just as easily as Peter. It is possible to sell out so completely and to realise too late that you've burnt your bridges and there's no way back to surrender to despair and be lost. And you could do that as easily as Judas. Of course, Caiaphas, uh, Peter and Judas each had unique parts to play in God's great drama of redemption. These were unique, unrepeatable parts. You and I can't be Caiaphas. We can't be Peter. And we can't be Judas. But there are realities here that you and I see in the world around us and in which we can be enmeshed very easily. Corruption. Predetermined, unrelenting evil. Cowardice. Shame and fear. And compunction. Devastating regret. Remorse and despair. And as this vortex of of weakness and evil gathers momentum, one man stands in the midst of it. The one, strangely, seated at the right hand of power. The one who will come on the clouds of heaven as the judge. You see, the manipulation of justice by Caiaphas, the failure to stand and speak out by Peter, the personal betrayal with all its terrible consequences by Judas, none of those overcomes the one we will remember in a minute when we take and eat in remembrance that Christ's body was broken for us and drink in remembrance that his blood was shed for us. It's a good thing that we're celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning. It reminds us that our weaknesses and our compromises and our failures are not the final word, that there is something real, true, 
and solid and immovable that we can rely on. He stood firm. He stayed the course. He stuck with it all the way through. Well, none of these scenes is pretty to look at. But we mustn't ignore them and in the end we must not separate them from the bigger picture of what was happening that night. They'll confront us with things that are all too familiar. Corruption, paralysing fear and shame, an overpowering sense of powerlessness and helplessness. And that's not pleasant. But the bigger picture is the answer. So look at what happened when they took Jesus to Caiaphas' house. I think we're supposed to notice that all's not well, even if it doesn't take us too far to begin to list all the injustices of that night. At point after point, what was done that night was dodgy. A nighttime hearing, predetermined outcome, the lame procession of false witnesses held in the high priest's residence, not in the temple, no delay of two days before the verdict, all the rest. But our attention should be drawn to the great face-off at the centre of it all, the high priest versus the preacher from Galilee. This is every bit the trial of Caiaphas as it is the trial of Jesus. It will reveal him for who he is, for what he's become. And Caiaphas is clearly exasperated, isn't he? The witnesses didn't produce the evidence he needed. Even the temple bit was pretty disappointing, really. So he went for the nuclear option, the oath that would box Jesus into a corner. If he still refused to speak, he'd be despising a legally imposed oath brought with the name of the living God. If he said no, he wasn't the Christ, well, then his ministry would be over. And if he said yes, he was, then clearly he'd be lying and he, it would be blasphemy. You see, Caiaphas was not after the truth. He just wanted to force Jesus to speak, to trap him in his words. Now, what drove Caiaphas, do you think? What was going on? The picture we piece together of Caiaphas in the New Testament is of a man threatened and determined to get rid of Jesus at any cost. John tells us that when Caiaphas and the council got together with the Pharisees after the resurrection of Lazarus, they'd said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. He had to go. It's better that one man should die for the people than the whole nation should perish. It was self-interest on a monumental scale that was willing to trash justice and trash the truth. But the real tragedy is that when Jesus stood in front of him and when Jesus spoke of the right hand of power, echoing Psalm 110, and when he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven, echoing Daniel 7, and Caiaphas was the high priest, he should have known the scriptures. Without even blinking, he seeks to wipe him out. Predetermined, unrelenting evil. He had been so blindly pursuing his own agenda for so long that he failed to see the saviour and judge of all the world when he stood right in front of him. He could not disentangle himself from the lies he'd been telling, telling others and telling himself. 
And so what he did that night looked to him like the right and proper course of action. And that is almost a textbook definition of corruption. And example after example among men and women in ministry in just the last few years should be testimony that it could ensnare us just as easily. So hear the words of Jesus before Caiaphas. As directly and clearly as we could ever ask for, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He is the one who executes God's purpose on earth. He is the one who will come on the clouds of heaven as the judge of all the earth. Let those words remind you of what is most real and let them burn away the lies that we too easily believe. The second thing prophesied by Jesus just earlier that very night, Peter's threefold denial of Jesus out in the courtyard is such a sharp and direct contrast to what was going on inside, isn't it? Inside, Jesus spoke with extraordinary clarity as he appealed to two of the great messianic texts of the Old Testament. And he did it in the face of the high priest, the most powerful Jewish office in the land. But Peter gave no testimony at all. He backed away and denied Jesus three times and he did it in the face of the servant girl, another servant girl and those who just happened to be standing by. It's a contrast not just to Jesus' clarity in the residence just metres away but it's a contrast also to the promises Peter himself had made earlier that night. I will never, never betray you. And the brandishing of the sword in the garden. How courageous he looked at that moment. But now when a little girl asks him if he knew Jesus, he denies it. What drove Peter, do you think? What was it that made him deny Jesus repeatedly that night? It is precisely the opposite of what he planned to do. He'd made all those promises to himself, to Jesus, but when the time came, he had to back off, blend into the background, melt into the darkness. Why was he unprepared, unable to declare himself for Jesus in the courtyard? What was he afraid of? Was it that the little girl would rush off and tell her masters and he might be arrested too? Or was it simply that he would have to stand out as different to those others gathered in the courtyard? Friends, it is not always the biggest challenge that can trip us up. In the garden, Peter was willing to brandish a sword against around 200 people, stand up for Jesus and defend him against all attack. But here in the courtyard, in the dark, just gathered around the fire to keep warm, with the innocent question of a slave girl, he crumbles. At the time, it might not have seemed a big thing. It wasn't a public denunciation, after all. It wasn't like Judas, was it? These people didn't matter. This little distancing from Jesus would have absolutely no impact on what was going on inside the building, would it? But then the cock crowed. 
Dawn was about to break on the day of the crucifixion and Jesus was all alone. Now, I wonder, have you ever, have you ever wondered how Matthew knew about this? How did he know what Peter had done in the darkness? The events inside, what Caiaphas had said, what Jesus had said, what those on the council had done, that news would have spread. But who knew the details of what Peter had done in the darkness? He could only have heard of it from Peter. After the crucifixion, after the resurrection, Peter understood how significant a thing it was that was done in the darkness that night. It was never as little a thing as it might appear against the backdrop of the monumental goings-on inside the house. Fear and weakness and shame had taken hold of Peter that night and others needed to know that Jesus was not blindsided by Peter's failure. It's so easy for any of us to crumble at the little challenge, not just the enormous ones. I wonder whether you know we don't hear more of Peter or his story in Matthew's Gospel. This is the last time that he's mentioned by name. But again, it is John who reminds us that in the face of weakness and failure, Jesus has compassion. In John 21, Jesus gave Peter the opportunity to say three times, just as he had denied him three times, to say three times, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Peter's shame was not the last word. He had to learn what the cross meant for him. My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The danger of crumbling is real. Don't underestimate it. Take notice. But so too is the reality of forgiveness. And so we're brought to the third tragic scene. It took the judgment of the Sanhedrin, the handing over of Jesus to Pilate, which could only really mean one thing. It took that to impress on Judas the monstrous foolishness of what he had done. But when you think about it, what else did he expect? What were the high priests and elders going to do with Jesus if they ever got hold of him? What were they always going to do? The determination to kill him had been mounting all through his earthly ministry. Why was it only now dawning on Judas? There's so much we'd like to know about Judas. We just aren't told that much. We hardly have enough to see how all the things we do know fit together. Hanging himself here in Matthew, falling headlong and disemboweling himself in Acts 1, perhaps one leads to the other. We don't have enough information to say. But what we can say is what Matthew makes clear. Judas's realisation that he had betrayed innocent blood, his regret and remorse and pathetic attempt to distance himself from it all, take it back, I was wrong. It didn't really mean repentance. As one writer puts it, he might have wanted to turn away from what he had done but he did not turn toward Jesus. 
And repentance does not just mean turning away, it also means turning toward. Otherwise, it's just regret, remorse, compunction. And what he discovered too late was that he simply could not undo what he had done. That's your problem, mate, the chief priest and the elders told him. See to it yourself. But it was too late and there was no way back. Judas's story was a pattern of apostasy and rejection echoing, Matthew shows us, even in the details, the words of Jeremiah 19 and Zechariah 11. So the money they had given him to betray Jesus, to facilitate the handing uh, over of Jesus away from the adoring crowds, ended up in the hands of a potter in exchange for a plot of land in order to, buy, to bury uh, foreigners. And by the reference to those Old Testament words, we are reminded again that none of this, not even Judas's weakness and the chief priest's hypocritical philanthropy was outside the saving purposes of God. Ironically, it was Peter who would stand up among the 120 disciples after Jesus' resurrection and say, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And he went on to quote Psalm 69. That night, Jesus was on trial. It was a sham trial. The witnesses lied and could not agree. It was a monumental miscarriage of justice, and it was at every point the plan of God. Jesus entering into the very heart of corruption and weakness and despair in order to save us. But in and around this great trial, with its extraordinary consequences, were three little trials. The trial of Caiaphas, when faced with the one to whom all judgment in heaven on earth is given, what would he do? The trial of Peter when faced with the opportunity to stand with the one despised and condemned by the world, what would he do? The trial of Judas, when faced with the reality of what he had done, the betrayal of innocent blood, what would he do? And each of those little trials carries a warning for us who don't read the gospel in order to find someone else to blame, but who see in their weakness, in their failure, and their corruption, the danger and reality of our own. Which is why, again, it's a very good thing that we share the Lord's Supper this morning at the end of this term. Because he stood firm in the midst of all this and the more that was to come, we can know something just as real and infinitely more powerful, the forgiveness of sins sure and certain because his body was given for us in our weakness and his blood is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Will you pray with me? Father, as we look at the events of that night and see failure on a scale that is terrifying, corruption and wickedness, despair and weakness. 
Uh, Father, we are very much aware that we could be entrapped in those things as well, so very, very easily and very, very quickly. But we know that greater than all of those things is the one who stood trial in that room, who gave himself so that we might be forgiven. And so we would entrust ourselves to you and to our Saviour and pray that by the power of your Spirit you might unite us to him and that forgiven by him we might live as faithful disciples encouraging one another until that day when Jesus comes on the clouds of heaven. And we ask that in his name.